Well, good morning, everybody. Good morning, everybody else. Hey, and happy Sabbath. I'm just curious, do you like the Sabbath greeting? I mean, it's unique to the Seventh-day Adventist community. I think we, we get together and we say, happy Sabbath. Do you like it? Is it music to your ears? Have you noticed um, that when you say something over and over and over and over again that you can kind of go into intellectual neutral and forget what it means? H- have you noticed that? So, so I've decided recently to change up my Sabbath greeting to remind myself and others what it means. So can I try out my new Sabbath greeting on you? Is that, is that okay? Okay, here it is. Are you ready? Happy salvation by grace through faith in Christ alone day. Go ahead and try that on the person next to you. Just, just greet them. Happy salvation by grace through faith in Christ alone day. Go for it. Doesn't that, doesn't that just have the right ring to it? Because that's what the Sabbath means, right? Finished work of creation, finished work of redemption in Christ. So that's what it means. When I first developed this, this, this new Sabbath greeting to get myself out of you know, mental neutral and remind myself what it means. I, I tried it on a local church uh, where I was uh, going to be speaking. I walked in the foyer and there was this, this, this man standing there to greet me and he looked like he was probably the head elder. He had that held, head elder look about him. He, he looked head elderish. And I walked in and there he was and I said with a big smile, I said, happy salvation by grace through faith in Christ alone day. And he didn't like it. He said, Happy, you better keep the Ten Commandments before the second coming day. I said, Happy, if we love him, we'll keep his commandments day. He said, Happy, the investigative judgment is underway, and you had better get your act together, boy, day. I said, Happy, I've read Daniel 7 and 8, and judgment is in favor of the saints of the Most High God, day. And that was the end of it. The gospel won that day in the church foyer with the Sabbath greeting. Well, happy Sabbath, everybody. It's good to be here with you. It's good to be here with you. Now listen, I want to begin our time together by um, playing a little bit of a word game. I'm going to say a word, and then you're going to raise your hand if you know what this word refers to, what this word means, okay? And you have to be honest. Those of you who, who know me, if you know the answer to this question right off the bat, let everybody else just think about it. Okay, here's the word. Are you ready? Get your hand ready. Put your hand up if you know what this word means. Here's the word. Bugatti. I, I don't know, 14 people? And this young man knows. Okay, well, it's not an exotic Italian pasta, although that's what it sounds like. What, what is a Bugatti? Here it is. Are you ready? Did you, did you hear that? That, ah, oh, through the... So, so what is a Bugatti? What is a Bugatti? Somebody said a car? No, no, no. The Bugatti is not a car. Do not insult the Bugatti <laughs> by calling it a mere car. The Bugatti isn't a mere car. The Bugatti, according to the engineers that designed it, they, they, they say it's a driving machine. It's not just a car. It's a driving machine. Now, I was ignorant as well. I didn't know what a Bugatti was until a friend of mine pulled up this photo on his phone and he said, 
do you see this? I said, yeah, that's, that's beautiful. What, what a work of art. And uh, he said, well, I heard you're going to, and he named a country in Europe. He said, you're going over there to do some, some evangelistic meetings, aren't you? And I said, yeah. He said, are you aware that we have a brother, by which he meant a fellow Seventh-day Adventist? We have a brother over there who owns one of these, who owns a Bugatti. I said, you're kidding. He said, yeah. And I said, and I'm going to that country? He said, yes, you are. And I said, and that brother lives there? Yes, he does. I said, well, I'm telling you, I'm going to drive that thing. And he said, no, 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 no. Nobody drives the brother's Bugatti but the brother himself. That's, that's the word on the street in the Adventist grapevine. No, no, you will never. His wife's never driven the Bugatti. Nobody drives the Bugatti except for the brother who owns the Bugatti because, in fact, a Bugatti, a Bugatti is a $2 million car. $2.2 million if you want, I don't know, air conditioning or something. If you want to replace the tires on a Bugatti, it costs $45,000 for a set of four. And you will need to replace the tires if you get it up to full speed because they will be bald and dangerous in a mere 12 minutes. The Bugatti maxes out as the fastest street car on earth. Don't debate it with me. Google it yourself. I know it's a neck-and-neck neck battle all the time. There might be some car in the last week that has been created that can go faster than the Bugatti. But the last time I checked, and when, when I went to this country and met this brother, it was the fastest street-legal car on earth. And so I said to my friend, I'm driving that car if a Seventh-day Adventist owns it. And he said, you will not, and we, we, we made a bet. I said, okay, you give $10,000 to the Church of the Living God if... In fact, I drive that car. And if I don't drive the car, I'll give you a dollar. <laughs> so we had our little bet. And uh, my wife and I, we went to that country. And about the third night of the meetings, this, this man who the description fit, I thought, that's him. I know that's him. He walked up with his wife and he said, oh, welcome to our country. Would you like to have lunch with us um, some afternoon while you're here? And I said, well, um, sure, yeah. So we went to his house, we had lunch, he had a newborn baby, and there was this beautiful newborn human there that he and his wife were passing back and forth, and look at my baby, he's amazing, this is his name, just look at him, he's cute, he's amazing, I'm like, yeah, what a beautiful baby, dude, where's the Bugatti? <laughs> so we went outside, and he pushed a button, people like this have buttons, and a garage door opened, and there was a Porsche Boxer. I said, that's not it. He pushed another button, and there was a Rolls Royce. I said, that's way old school. That's not it. He opened another, and there was a Ferrari. I said, we're getting close. He pushed a button, and there was the Bugatti. He said, do you want me to pull it out? I said, yes. He pulled it out into the driveway, and we, we circled around this way, and, and we just looked at it from every angle in the light. It was beautiful. I said, I said brother, could I drive the Bugatti? He said, no. <laughs> he said, do you know how much this car costs? I said, yeah, I Googled it. I know how much it costs, but really, can I drive the... No, you can't drive the Bugatti. I, I, said, I said, are you a Seventh-day Adventist? 
He said, yes, I'm a Seventh-day Adventist. That has nothing to do with it. I said, well, I'm a Seventh-day Adventist. You're a Seventh-day Adventist. There's a connection there. He said, no, you're not driving the Bugatti. I said, are you a Seventh-day Adventist who believes the Bible? He said, yes, I believe the Bible. I said, have you read Acts chapter 2? He said, well, I've read the whole Bible, so I'm sure I read Acts chapter 2, but what does it say? I said, the Bible says, fellow Seventh-day Adventists, that of the church, they had all things common. <laughs> so, brother, in order to be biblical, your Bugatti is my Bugatti. It's our Bugatti. This Bugatti belongs to the church. And I don't see any reason why I can't drive my Bugatti. He said, you're not driving it. And I said, listen, if you let me drive the Bugatti, I promise I will use the story in a sermon illustration and people will come to the Lord <laughs> through the experience I will have. And he said, oh, okay, yeah, you can drive it. It was that simple. And then I noticed my wife, out of my peripheral vision, was standing right about here and the whole time she was saying, do not let my husband drive the Bugatti. And I saw her, and I said something to her I've never said before or since. I said, you're not going to like this, but I, have to, I said, woman, silence. <laughs> the men are talking about the Bugatti. That was not cool. And it did not go well later on for me. We made up. We're still married. We got in the Bugatti, and he got in the driver's seat. I got in the passenger side. We went driving. He said, are you ready? I said, oh, yeah. And he dropped the pedal to the metal, and man, we went so fast, so fast. Do you know what I mean by that? We accelerated so fast. I, my body was just being, by G-force, just back into the seat, just whew. Then he slowed down. He pulled over. He said, it's your turn. I said, yes, it is. <laughs> so we switched sides, and I was in the driver's seat, and I put my seatbelt on, and he said, this feels strange. I've never been in the passenger seat. I said, put your seatbelt on. <laughs> we began driving 20, 30, 40 miles an hour. We got on a long straightaway. I looked at him for permission because he thinks it's his. And I said, he said, okay, go for it. And I floored it. I am telling you, that it was exhilarating. It was the perfect combination between terror and fun. <laughs> I loved every second of it because it was just a few seconds. And then we slowed down, got back to the house. I said, well, we should have filled it up with gas. We used it. He said, no, no, no. This takes a special high-octane fuel I have to import from France. And, and I have it on the property here. We don't go to a petrol station. We don't go to a gas station and fill this thing up. I said, whoa, wow. He said, because this isn't a car. This is a driving machine. Okay, here's the thing about the Bugatti. The Bugatti runs at the optimal level when it has the exact right fuel source to power it. The human being... That's what you are. That's what I am. We are engineered psychologically, emotionally, and even biologically, as I'm about to share with you, to operate at the optimal level on a very, very specific fuel source. Now, the Apostle Paul understands this. 
And in Galatians chapter 5, and this is Paul at his theological best. This is Paul reaching to the heights of his understanding of the gospel. Paul says in Galatians chapter 5 and verse 5, he says, For we through the Spirit wait for the hope of, and here's the term I want to unpack with you, righteousness by faith. Now you've heard that term before. This is the only place in the Bible where the term occurs as a complete term. I mean, the idea, the concept is throughout Scripture, from Genesis to Revelation, with different kinds of language. But here's the only time in the Bible where the term itself, righteousness by faith, occurs. We have justification by faith. We have language like reconciliation. But here's righteousness by faith. Now, what is righteousness by faith? Well, first of all, Paul says, we through the Spirit wait for the hope of righteousness by faith. And the first thing we need to know about righteousness by faith is that the righteousness part of the theological equation is not within our jurisdiction. You and I, we can't do anything about the righteousness part of the equation. You can't try hard enough. You can't ratchet up your willpower. You can't achieve. You can't manufacture righteousness. So Jesus got to this idea when he said, listen, he said, which one of you by taking thought, by mental power, by willpower, which one of you by taking thought can add one cubit to his stature? Can you think hard enough? Can you exert your will hard enough to get taller? No, you can't. It's a rhetorical question. Jesus is saying, neither can you who are accustomed to doing evil do good. This is out of your, out of your orbit. You can't simply say, oh, I'm going to be righteous and then do it. You can't manufacture righteousness. So the righteousness part of the equation is outside of our jurisdiction. But Paul tells us in this equation that, that righteousness is by means of another mechanism called faith. Righteousness is by faith. By faith. But here's the thing about faith. Faith isn't even something that you and I, by just trying to have faith, can exercise. So faith is a universal gift, according to Scripture. Everybody, like you have imagination and memory and the, the rational faculty. Faith is like a universal faculty that's built into human psychology. So we all have faith. But we are not necessarily at any given moment exercising the faith that lies dormant in our hearts and minds. It has to be activated in order to be set in motion, in order to do what faith does, which is namely to lay hold of righteousness. So Paul's not done with his righteousness by faith equation. He doesn't just say righteousness by faith, get her done. He says in the next verse, and this is the crucial part for our purposes this morning, for in Christ Jesus neither nor avails anything but faith that works by love. Now I put blanks there because what it says in the text is for in Christ Jesus neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything but rather faith that works by love. I've left it blank there because circumcision was just a hot button theological issue of Paul's day. So that was the issue that everybody was debating whether you had to be or didn't have to be, etc., etc. 
But the statement that Paul is making remains true no matter what you put in those blanks. It is an absolutely true statement no matter what you put. Let me, let me try this out on you. For in Christ Jesus, neither, this is going to hurt for a minute, stick with me. For in Christ Jesus, neither Sabbath keeping nor Sunday keeping avails anything for righteousness, for salvation. Are, are you still with me? Put anything you want in the blanks. Nothing, literally nothing you can think of avails anything for salvation except one thing. Righteousness is by faith, Paul says, and faith works by love. The word works or working here is energeo, and this word is the word from which we get the English word energy, power, fuel. Literally, Paul is telling us that, listen, listen, he's saying righteousness, which is outside of our moral orbit, you, you can't achieve it, you can't manufacture it. Righteousness, he says, however, is achievable by means of faith. And faith, that sleeping giant of potential that is lying dormant in your chest, in your heart, in your mind, in your psychology, righteousness is by faith. And faith, Paul says, and here's where it gets beautiful and practical, faith is activated by love. What you need, what I need in the righteousness by faith equation or what is otherwise known as the gospel, you need and I need a vital encounter with the love of God, the transcendent, other-centered, unconditional, objective reality of God's love for you apart from anything you can do to earn that love. The moment it dawns on the human mind that I am the object of a love that is completely unconditioned by anything happening in me subjectively, the moment that realization strikes, faith wakes up. Like Sleeping Beauty, the kiss of God's love wakes up faith and it begins to move in the direction of righteousness. Ellen White, those of you who are familiar with this author will appreciate this, received a letter in the 1880s in which a brother said, hey Ellen, there's a lot of talk about this righteousness by faith thing going on right now. What is righteousness by faith? And Ellen White didn't write back with a very high-sounding technical theological answer. She said, ah, I'll tell you what righteousness by faith is. Righteousness by faith, and these are her words, she says, righteousness by faith is this. It is the active principle of love imparted by the Holy Spirit. It's exactly what Paul formulated in his Galatians righteousness by faith equation. Righteousness is by faith, and faith is activated. It's empowered. It is fueled by love. So track with me here. Essentially, righteousness by faith is the best idea that has ever graced human consciousness. Whether we know that's what it is or not, no matter how it's formulated or articulated, righteousness by faith is the best idea going in human awareness. And here's why. 
Because righteousness by faith is essentially answering the question, what is a human being? Not who are you, but what are you? The who of your identity, I'm Ty Gibson and I have a particular history and I have my own unique experience as a human being. I'm a particular who, but the deeper question is, what am I? What kind of apparatus am I? What kind of machine am I? What kind of, what am I as a human being? Or let's ask the question like this. Not only what is a human being, but let's ask the question, what is the fundamental power that fuels human flourishing? Now hold that question in mind as we loop through some science and then back to the Apostle Paul. One of the most remarkable books that's been published in recent times that I want to introduce you to is by Dr. Dean Ornish, Love and Survival. Dean Ornish is the, is the Harvard graduate who uh, basically proved to the world through controlled scientific studies that you can reverse heart disease by basically eating actual food and moving your body. So he proved that. That was one line of his study. But his first love as a scientist, his first love as a scientist was the connection between love and survival, the emotional heart, not just the physical heart that pumps blood. And so he wrote a book that was on the New York Times bestseller list for a really long time with the brilliant title, Love and Survival. There is a relationship, according to Dr. Ornish, between love and survival. I don't know if you can see the subtitle of the book, but the subtitle says the scientific basis for the healing power of intimacy. And when he says healing power, he means biologically healing, that physiology follows love into flourishing. So Dr. Ornish builds his case, and he begins like this. He says, listen, I'm going to have to have you change the slides with me when I push it because this is not working any longer. So push. I don't know what to do to make it work. Okay, so Dr. Ornish says, anything, anything that promotes feelings of love and intimacy is healing. Just pause right there. Any, he's a scientist. He's not a theologian. He's not talking to us about God or the Bible or the gospel. He's saying, listen, as a science, there's all this data that has been amassed that shows, for example, if you and I have an encounter right? And we've never met one another before. And you, upon the encounter with me, detect a pleasant acceptance in my eyes. Your white blood cell count will go up. If we reach out and shake hands and we have flesh-on-flesh contact, hey, how's it going? Your white blood cell count goes up. You are incrementally more resistant to disease in that moment by simply having a pleasant encounter with another human being. Anything that promotes feelings of love and intimacy is healing. Anything that promotes isolation, separation, loneliness, loss. Are you getting the picture here? Anything that promotes anger, cynicism, depression, alienation, and related, what's the word? Feelings, emotions leads, often leads, to suffering, disease, and premature death from all causes. Do you hear what the doctor is saying? He's saying anything that pulls you down emotionally impacts your biology. 
Anything that lifts you up emotionally impacts your biology in the other direction. So Dr. Ornish says, listen, he says, the scientific evidence, not the theology, but the scientific evidence leaves little doubt that love and intimacy are powerful determinants of our health and survival. And then he says this. This is so remarkable. He says, why they, that is love and intimacy, have such a impact remains somewhat a mystery. So the rest of the book is Dr. Ornish going around the world and asking 22 experts in their various fields, the biggest brainiacs on the planet. Hey, so the research is revealing that love and intimacy have something to do with our biological flourishing. Why? 22 experts worldwide, and they all came back with approximately the same answer. We don't know. Because we're not supposed to be like that if we're evolutionary animals. Survival of the fittest should dictate our flourishing, not altruism. So Dr. Ornish concludes, wow, it's a mystery. We don't know why human beings are psychologically, emotionally, and biologically wired for love. Well, the research can be summarized something like this. Every human being, yourself included, myself included, you have what might be described as the malfunction region of human experience, and you have the optimization region of human experience. So, so, so the malfunction kinds of emotions and relational dynamics are things like racism and loneliness and isolation. If you're experiencing anything like envy at any given moment in your life, greed, hate, anger, all of those things depress the immune system and shut the human being down biologically. The optimization of the human machine occurs when you experience things like generos generosity and acceptance and giving, forgiveness. <laughs> The moment your mind and heart is in a relational dynamic in which you feel loved, you begin to flourish as a human being. Again, this isn't theology. This is science that Dr. Ornish is bringing to us, which brings us back to the Apostle Paul, because I'm going to suggest to you something that I find absolutely remarkable, and it is this. That righteousness by faith, as Paul describes it, is a relational dynamic. It's not theology in essays and in books. It's not a mere theory. It is a theory. I mean, I'm communicating the theory to you of righteousness by faith. It's an actual rational equation of righteousness by faith that works by love. So it is a rational equation, but righteousness by faith is more than a rational equation, so much so that you can actually experience righteousness by faith without being able to explain it. Because righteousness by faith is a relational dynamic, and what does that relational dynamic look like? Well, it's a relational dynamic in which I'm going to suggest to you that the thing the Bible calls righteousness by faith is in fact the highest form of healing psychology that hails from God himself for the healing of the human soul. Well, what is, this, what is this healing psychology? What is this righteousness by faith? What is this gospel? And in what sense is it a relational dynamic? Now, now track with this. The Apostle Paul, when he describes it, when he describes the righteousness by faith 
equation, he says in Romans chapter 4, he says, listen, here's how God does this thing called salvation. God calls those things which do not exist as though they did. Now that sounds weird, because if you call things as if they existed when they don't, you're a liar. You're spinning fiction. But God calls those things which do not exist as though they do exist because God is the creator and what he says actualizes. Now watch this. In Paul's context, what is he referring to that God calls those things which do not exist as though they did? The context is God calls or relates to you as if you were righteous even though you're sinful. He relates to you and calls you innocent even though in all actuality you're guilty. And at that point, you might say, well, that sounds like some kind of fancy footwork. That sounds like legal fiction or something. I mean, how could God call me innocent when I am guilty? Relate to me as if I'm righteous when in fact I'm not. Well, you do it all the time on your own micro level as a human being. The only way for you to have and sustain a relationship with anybody is to let your love compensate for their failures. To let your love cover a multitude of sins. I mean, everybody here that's married, you know that you are head over heels in love. You're like, oh, he has such symmetrical eyebrows. I just love him. She's beautiful. We're going to get married. It's going to be great. And then you got married. And you found out that he or she has some weird idiosyncrasies. And you're like, oh, no. Did I sign up for this for life? Yes, you did. And the only way for you to stay married is to allow love to relate to the person as if they were more than they actually are. And that's how all relationships work on the human level if they are sustained. Now God, on the salvation level, on the cosmic level, is saying, listen, I'm going to relate to you as if you were righteous and innocent even though you're not. Because think about the converse. What if God were to relate to you exactly as you are? What if God were to treat me exactly as I deserve? I would cease to exist in an instant. So God in his love has to allow his love to compensate and to carry me relationally when dysfunction would drive me to complete and utter ruin. Listen, Paul comes along then in chapter 6 and he says, okay, so here's what you're going to do. God calls those things which do not exist as though they do. He calls you righteous and innocent even though you're not. And then he says, okay, likewise, you, yourselves, reckon yourselves to be dead to sin and alive to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. What does it mean to reckon? They say this down south, I reckon this and I reckon that. What does it mean to reckon? It means to regard He's saying, hey, God is relating to you as if you're innocent and as if you're righteous. Now, begin to take on board God's perception of you. Begin to think of yourself as in right relationship with God. Begin to, begin to say to yourself, God loves me. God forgives me. God's love is superseding. Or as he says later on in Romans, he says, he says where sin abounds, Grace superabounds over it. Begin to think of yourself that way. So here's righteousness by faith. 
in a nutshell. God relates to me according to my potential, not according to my present reality. If he were to relate to you and me according to our present reality, we would cease to exist. So God says, listen, I love you too much to let you go. So I'm going to kind of prophetically pretend that you are as innocent as the wind-driven snow. You're pure, you're clean, you're righteous, you're innocent. As far as I'm concerned, you've never done anything wrong. And as you come into that relationship with Jesus in which you can now with dignity kind of hold your head up and say, man, I am a child of the king of the universe and he digs me. God likes me. God loves me. I'm forgiven. His grace is remarkable. As you begin to take in that kind of thinking into your mind and your heart, it begins to transform and modify from the inside out. So much so that the Apostle Paul in another passage that comes at the same truth but with different language says, listen, here's what goes on in the gospel. The love of Christ compels us. It motivates us. It causes us to do things that otherwise we would never be willing or able to do. And it causes us to refrain from doing things that otherwise we would be very much inclined to do. The love of Christ, wow, it's so powerful, Paul says, that it changes us. The love of Christ compels us because we thus judge or we discern something. We realize something. That if one died for all, then all died. Jesus' death is the representative death of the whole human race. For God so loved the world in total that he gave his only begotten son for the world in total. Jesus died for everybody. Jesus died for me and he died for everybody. And when I realize that something happens, Paul says that, and he died for all so that those who live should no longer live for themselves but live for him who died for them and rose again. The love of Christ breaks the power of selfishness at the root level of the human heart. We stop living for ourselves in the light of his love for us. God's love, according to Paul, is a creative force. It brings into existence what otherwise would not exist. And you know this is true if you're raising children. If you relate to any little boy or a little girl with incrimination for their failures, hey Johnny, sweep the kitchen floor, he does the job, and then you sweep it after him and say, man, you did a poor job sweeping the floor. His motivation will descend, and next time you ask him to sweep the floor, he would rather not. But if you say to your little boy, wow, that is incredible. You did such a great job. And you're looking at banana peels that he missed. Johnny's like, yeah, I'm the sweeper. Just ask me to sweep because I know how to do it. Mom, can I sweep next time it needs to be swept? Yes, you can, Johnny, because you're good at it. Your motherhood, your fatherhood is compensating for the failure and casting a vision upward. And the child begins to be more because you regard the child as more. That's the gospel. Well, Ellen White comes along, for those of you who are familiar with her writings, and she says, oh, I'll tell you what's going on here. She says, love is power. Love is power. Intellectual and moral strength are, 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 are built in to this principle. 
and cannot be separated from it. And then she says this, love cannot live without action. You know this, those of you who have fallen in love. You're like willing to do anything for the one you love. Love can't live without action. And every act increases, strengthens, and extends it. Love will gain the victory. What you need, what I need, is to drink in a steady intake of God's love. Drink it in. Take it in. God is good. He's good toward me. God loves me. He forgives me. I'm not, I'm not guilty. I'm innocent in his eyes. Therefore, and this is remarkable, Therefore, from now on, we regard no one according to the flesh or their natural carnality and fallenness. Paul says when you see that God loves you and loves everybody else, you stop judging people. You stop, stop relating to people according to their failures and you begin casting the upward vision and you begin relating to people the way God is relating to you. Or think about it like this. Here's the gospel in a nutshell as Paul is articulating it. The way I see God seeing me, now this is nuanced, so hear this. Not just the way I see God, but the way I see God seeing me. How does God see me? How does God relate to me? What are his relational dynamics toward me? The way I see God relating to me determines the way I will see myself. I will begin to regard myself and think of myself in the elevated terms of innocence that the gospel gives me as a gift. And the way that I see God seeing me will determine the way I see myself, which will impact the way I see and relate to others. So the gospel is basically the objective facts of the gospel, God's transcendent, unconditional love that you can do nothing to earn, which then produces a subjective experience. The objective gospel of God's unconditional love produces the subjective experience. If you focus on subjective experience, victory over sin, keeping the law of God, getting the victory, being an overcomer, which are all good things, but if you focus in the direction of your personal achievements and what you can do and ought to do and should do and better do or else, you will, you will break down spiritually gradually until you either become a self-righteous Pharisee that polices the potluck or you will become a discouraged individual who gives up, throws up your hands, and you leave the church. You need to completely, I need to completely shift the focus to the objective facts of the gospel. What Jesus is and what he's done for you. And let it do its work in the heart, in the mind. So in rapid-fire succession, here's how God is relating down through history. We have Abraham, who was a liar and a coward. Read the story. And he was the man God chose through whom to transmit the covenant down through history. Isaac was a dysfunctional father. You would not let him babysit your children. You would not. You would be like, Isaac, thanks for the offer. No, I'm going to leave them alone in a parking lot rather than leave them with you. <laughs> this is Isaac, and he is God's chosen person through the process. Jacob, oh man, Jacob was a totally dysfunctional and manipulative thief. His name just means supplanter or dirty, rotten little brat. 
basically. And he grew up to measure up to that picture of himself. And yet he was the one through whom God did remarkable things that we are the beneficiaries of. Moses was a murderer and a coward that turned tail and ran. And he is the lawgiver and the person who engineered the social community of Israel. David was a murderer and an adulterer. An adulterer is an understatement because of the power differential of a king demanding Bathsheba. She had no choice in the matter. I won't go further. Peter was a loudmouth hothead who said everything that popped into his noggin, and fully 70% of it should not have been said. John and James were self-righteous, violent thugs. Let's burn the whole village down because they're not being hospitable to our Messiah. And Matthew, Matthew was probably the worst of all. He was an IRS agent (laughs) collecting taxes from his people that were illegitimate. Paul was a self-righteous Pharisee and he was a murderer himself. And then there's you and me. I don't know what you're going to fill in the blank there, but I can tell you you're messed up. You're not fundamentally better than anybody else in the world or anybody that we've just named. There's nobody who's ever done something so bad that you yourself wouldn't do it given the same genetics, circumstances, and pressures. You're a sinner, and you need a Savior. So whatever is true of you and all of your dysfunction, I'm here this morning to tell you the good news that this is what's true of you. You are, you are, the beloved of God, perfectly loved. No matter else, whatever else is true of you, and you know you're a scoundrel, whatever else is true of you, you're perfectly loved. Not only are you perfectly loved, you are accepted in the beloved. Not only are you accepted in the beloved according to the gospel, you are forgiven and redeemed. Not only are you forgiven and redeemed, listen, you are more than a conqueror in Christ. You are, in fact, enthroned representatively in Christ at the right hand of the Father, the victory position. Actually, you're amazing. You are in Christ what you are not in yourself. And that is the good news. You're not a Bugatti, but you're very much like one. You are engineered psychologically, emotionally, and biologically to live on the very specialized high-octane fuel of God's love for you, not yours for him. And yours for him will be generated precisely in proportion to your acceptance of his love for you. The Bugatti is a very highly engineered driving machine. You know what you are? You are a very highly engineered love machine. Turn to the person next to you and say, you're a love machine. I want to watch this. Go ahead. Just turn to the, say, you're a love machine. Don't say you're a love machine, baby. That's creepy. Unless, okay. Okay. All right. That's the good news. Happy Sabbath.